0: So standard 4.1 is talking primarily about diversity and the importance of diversity. So the first part of it is talking about how diversity can be used to strengthen a literate society, making it more productive, more adaptable to change, and more equitable. So I guess like the way for a history teacher, this is a really important aspect diversity is in general because of all the content that we're talking about, the information. There's a lot of different cultures that we're talking about and understanding how cultural diversity in particular plays into that is really important. Just from a historian's standpoint, as a teacher it makes even more of a difference because it can end up making a difference on how students are interacting in the classroom, how they talk to each other, how they talk to me as a woman. It can make a difference on a whole lot of different things. Um, as far as how it can strengthen illiterate society, um, and to make it more productive to me, it's, I guess the way I can, I'm trying to think a little bit about this, um, how it strengthens illiterate society. So I guess in that case, it's talking about different readings that aren't necessarily from rich white men because it's a lot of literacy that we have like a lot of the classics is a lot of stuff written by a lot of white dudes and I think that incorporating di- like literature that's more than just a bunch of white old dudes talking about how women function even though they're not women and they don't understand anything um <laughs> or anything like that I think it would be more um it it would make students more engaged in the content, um, and it would definitely bring more perspectives to other cultural groups, if that makes sense. So, in a history standpoint, that would be more of talking about how, um, like, different primary sources. So, if possible, like, the best thing I can think of is, like, medieval times, um, looking at documents from, like, Kings and priests and popes and all that versus peasants. In that case, I wouldn't be able to have a full diverse aspect. I'd have to go with the sources that are actually existing. And those are usually by the rich white people, unfortunately. Um, But if I'm looking at like 1920s or 1930s or 1940s, more modern things where more diverse groups are going to be literate, I can sit there and pick and choose... And I can find different gr- different sources from different different cultures um, to be able to bring into my classroom. I think in doing that, it would end up creating more interest from the students. And it would help build a much more um, knowledge of diversity and knowledge of different cultures. Um, in ru- I want to go to a rural area. And in a lot of those areas, um, you end up seeing issues of... A lack of cultural knowledge um, because everyone's all a bunch of white kids of the, of middle class families that grew up doing the same thing and grew up knowing each other and there's very few, there's very minimal diversity. So this is something that's really important to bring in. So yeah. So part two is talking about demonstrating an understanding of the impact of urban, suburban, and rural environments on local culture, language, and learning to read and write. So, kind of what I was talking about with the last one. Um, I grew up in kind of fitting that I ended up talking about rural stuff and my goals of being in a rural area. I grew up in a rural area. It's a lot different than Greeley. Um, the culture there, it's it's a lot of um, conservative mindsets. You're not gonna have a whole lot of it, it's 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 really conservative. is the best way I can describe it, and I don't want to get into examples. Because that's a lot of political issues that I currently don't want to get into in a podcast. Um, so in learning to read and write, um, I don't know. I guess in my experience in a rural area, area um, there wasn't a whole lot of focus on learning other languages. Um, we had Spanish because it was required by the state for us to... Uh, have a certain number of um, Spanish, of credit hours in a foreign language. And Spanish is the easy... It's not the easiest, but it's the most accessible, if that makes sense. Um, and it's the language that would end up benefiting us the most to learn. Um, and then as far as me learning, like, the English language, this is definitely biased from a person who um, grew up speaking English. Um, it felt... It felt like my teachers didn't really differentiate. I don't know if that's quite the right word. Um, but it felt, it's really hard to explain. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of articulate it because it's been so long since I've been in that learning environment of learning the English language. Um, I felt, it felt fast paced to me, um. It could be that I had the same teacher teaching me English. I had, in secondary education, I only had two English teachers the entire time. Through just a random fluke, it just kind of happened that way. Um, it, it it felt really fast-paced with that. Um, as far as, like, actually learning the steps of reading in, like, elementary school, um, what they would do for us is they would ask our parents to come in. It's volunteers, or they just ask for volunteers in general to teach us how to read. It's like a little like, they just come in and just read with us and stuff. Um, my mom would actually do that a lot. It was really fun, especially as a first grader, because like you love your parents a lot, and you want to see them all the time. So I'd be really happy when my mom would come, and I could just read to her for a day. It was great. She'd give us candies. It was like, uh, like cream, sa- like lifesavers, basically. The best way I can describe it, but they don't—they're not made anymore. <laughs> it's just childhood, right there. Um, I di- i digress. Uh, I don't know. They also would have like the high. When I was in high school, um, the Spanish class I was in—it was a terrible class because none of the kids respected the Spanish language, and none of the kids respected the prof- the uh, teacher. She insisted everyone call her professora, but I didn't. I just called her Miss Richardson. Um, The students did not respect her at all because she was also incredibly liberal and she pushed a lot of her political views. Um, One of the worst things she did was she was slamming um, coal mines, which it was a town with an economy based on the coal mines. You can't really just diss on the entire town's economy when most of the students have family working in the coal mines. Um, But anyway, we went down to the elementary school and we would read in Spanish what the students were reading to us in English. So it's kind of like that buddy system. Um, In a rural setting, it's a lot easier for students to be able to, um, there's a, it's a smaller ratio of student to teacher. And it's all almost the exact same cultural background. You're going to generally have a lot of white teachers teaching a lot of white students. In an urban area, it, in suburban areas, it's not necessarily going to be like that. Um, I believe Greeley is technically considered suburban, I want to say. Um, but my experience in doing observations and stuff in Greeley um, is that a lot of the students don't come from the same cultural background I do. Um, which makes kind of a difference because I do have to understand and I do kind of have to look at the fact that they're getting a different... Um, Like, it's, like, they have that different culture than me, and that is, in a way, impacting how things work. Um, There's certain things that I can never understand about them, especially students that are definitely um, refugees from the Middle East. There's so many things that I can never understand about that, Um, and it, it, it does make that difference. Um, I feel like in urban and suburban areas, in particular, there's a lot more of there's a way more students than there are teachers. Obviously, um, in high school, my biggest class sizes were like maybe 30 max, and that was like very rare. As in, like, um, like a few of my classes as a freshman and a few of my classes as sophomores, or as a sophomore. And I feel like the schools in this area. And in suburban and urban areas, don't get that luxury. They don't get, as an upperclassman, you don't get classes that are only like 15 students. Like anywhere ranging between 8 and 15 students were some of the upperclassmen classes that I had. Um, Namely, like my AP classes were usually that small because there were a lot of different AP classes. Um, Even then, like some of my AP classes were kind of higher. In student counts, um, we also had bigger classrooms, which is kind of interesting. Um, I I did an activity at Greeley Central not too long ago, where I was where I was trying to arrange the room into having the desks in a circle. I didn't have enough space to be able to put thirty six desks into a circle. I had to do a double row of desks, and it caused a whole lot of issues with the activity and everything. But like my uh, English teachers. Classroom in high school, she had probably about 40 desks in that classroom, if I had to make a guess. Um, And it was so spacious. You could make a circle easily in that class with all the desks. Not to mention, she had another room attached to the room where she had like a bunch of couches and stuff, and it was a lot more homey. It was definitely the most comfortable room in the school. Um, Some of the rooms weren't that big. Um, Our science rooms were definitely really small, they were in the center of the building which was really dumb design wise. Um, meanwhile, I feel like on the flip side science rooms in more like urban and suburban areas seem to be bigger. Like the normal classrooms are smaller than our classrooms were, but our science rooms were considerably smaller than the other school other ones. They also had wind they also have windows over here. <laughs> Ours didn't. That was just a really stupid design flaw for some stupid reason. The designers like, yes. No windows in science rooms. They don't need windows. Who needs windows when you're inhaling toxic fumes all the time? You know what I mean? Um, As far as language goes in a rural area, almost everyone speaks English. In my experience, it's either English or Spanish. There's hardly any other differences in language. Um, My hometown, I looked at uh, the 2010 census on Wikipedia for my hometown a while ago. And I think only 2% of the population was not, uh, they weren't white. Um, Meanwhile, in Greeley, I know there's like over 100 different languages spoken here. um, And that can make a huge difference on trying to make teaching for English language learners a lot different. Um, It's more challenging. I can't sit there and be like, In a rural area, I could sit there and find just a a quick translation over to Spanish. That's usually going to be the only one I'm having to worry about. But over here, there's a lot of other languages and I can't cater to every single language. That's not quite the phrasing I'm wanting to do for that. That's not like the right phrasing that I'm wanting. Um, But you can't have... It's really difficult to have one printout in this language and another printout in this language. It's a lot easier to just have it in all in English and then hope for the best in my experience of what I've kind of observed. Um, which makes it kind of that question of if you have a student that speaks this language but cannot like barely understands English, what do you do in that situation? You try to get the printout to like the worksheet into their native tongue, but sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes it's really difficult to find. Like, you, it's hard to find that language on Google Translate, or... And Google Translate isn't really that reliable, if I remember correctly, because sometimes there's a lot of phrases that are, come through incorrectly. You could... Um, when you translate certain phrases, like, back and forth, it constantly changes. It's like a game of telephone. Um, it, 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 it's difficult. It's kind of the point I'm trying to get to. This whole segment's almost 10 minutes, so I'm going to cut off here, because I'm rambling a lot. Alright, so this next part is talking about the ways in which various forms of diversity interact with adolescent literacy development and content area learning. Um well I know um I was reading a statistic somewhere, I don't remember exactly where it was, um, that it we might have talked about it in class even, um, that students who have a high that um able to read well in their native language are going to succeed better than they will in when they're translating over to like the english language if that makes sense um they're gonna learn the content better basically they're gonna not learn the content words are difficult it's late um they're gonna understand they're gonna it's gonna be easier for them to learn stuff in english because they already have a high literacy rate so what that does is it means that if i have one st- if i have two students from the same country one is from a lower class and did not get the luxury of a really good education but another student was in like private schools and had private tutors and all this stuff and did really well then the student that had more um uh, more what's the word uh uh resources uh, the student with more resources for education is going to end up doing better in my classes because they're going to understand it more. Um, on top of that, um, a lot of, like, looking at just, like, like, on the same note of class structures and everything, like, class diversity, um, students that are from, low, like, lower incomes, from my understanding, aren't going to have a lot of those same resources. They're not necessarily going to have mom and dad helping them read and to do the homework assignment. They're not, they might have to be uh, helping their younger siblings with reading and doing math and doing all this stuff, or they're doing a job to help support their family. They don't have the luxury to be able to focus on, Um, th- they don't have the luxury to be able to focus on school all the time. And they don't have the luxury of having help to help with Focusing on school, while some of those students that are like middle class or upper class families are going to be able to have like family members helping, like their parents helping them, or they're going to have the free time to be able to focus on school. Um, and that makes a huge difference as far as development and content area learning go- goes, because if the student's having to work after school every single day, and then they're staying up late trying to finish their homework. After a while, they're going to stop doing their homework, I would imagine. Um, and they're going to be more focused on trying to survive day to day than in getting a good grade in my class. Um, and I have to be able to look at those situations and be lenient. It's not always this fault of the student that they can't get the homework done. Um, they're humans, and they have needs, and I have to be able to make sure that those students are meet, are getting those needs that they have. Um, I don't remember what it's called the what it's the uh, hierarchy of needs. I don't remember who came up with that. But if a student's not eating because they don't have the, their family doesn't have the money for food, a lot of food, um, then. They're not going to be focusing on trying to learn the French Revolution. I don't know why the French Revolution is the only thing I can think of in the entirety of history, but it's the French Revolution. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of that um, class um, issue, the, the distribution with um, economic classes is, it can also go into a whole bunch of different racial issues. Um, there is a disproportionate amount of students that are from poor families that are, um, people of color. It's a really, really bad, um, statistic. I, I don't remember if I watched it in a video. This is just one of those things that's floating in my head. I think it was, like, only, like, 2 or 10% of white families are actually in, like, lower income statuses or students, Are, um, like it was either two or 10% of students that were from low income families that were attending school were actually white, if that makes sense. Um, meanwhile, like there's a lot more of, you know, it's more disproportionate. Um, which means that there's also a potentiality of a cultural background that I don't have that I can't relate to them because I just don't have that background. Um, I feel like those students, um, like, I feel like for those students, the fact that I'm a first-generation student, my parents didn't go to college, I had my entire tuition paid through through FAFSA, um, I feel like I want, I'm hoping that for me coming from that lower income background, it's going to be a bit more, um, inspirational to them that they can get out of that cycle, um, that it, that um they're not necessarily going to end up just like their parents that they can get out of it but it does require a lot of work um it it in my case it required me actually going to college and moving decently away from my town that has a dying economy um and it required me to it it requires a lot for me it did require me to go to college i don't think i would have been able to get out of the cycle um without going to college, unfortunately. I was lucky in the fact that I knew what I wanted to be when I was in middle school. I knew I've always known I wanted to be an educator. Um, And not every single student has that benefit. Not every single person knows they want to be an educator or wants to be this or that. And sometimes students don't get the luxury of um, they're actually succeeding in what they want to do. I've known a lot of people in the School of Music here at UNC that have changed majors, either because they start hating music or because they can't actually finish the degree. Like, something is preventing them from doing it. Like, um, they're a sophomore barrier in that case. Um, so I was considerably lucky with that, and I know that not every single student that I'm going to have is going to have that luck and is going to have that l- luxury. A lot of students flunk out in their first semester. I almost flunked out in my first semester. Um, And it's like, in that case, I need to help build students up for that to understand that when they go to college it is going to be a completely different experience. They're not going to have that same support system that they're going to have in um, high school. They're not going to have mom and dad making sure that they're going to class or grandma or grandpa or some kind of guardian. And they're not going to have professors constantly saying, you have a test on this day. Study. You know. So then they need to be building those habits of organization and all that Beforehand, I went on another I diverged considerably because now I was talking about diversity in development and content area learning. Um, and now I'm talking about college. Um, a lot of the the diversity aspect comes from, I guess what their families are able to provide if that makes sense. But it's like the biggest example I'm thinking of as far as diversity goes is class diversity. Um, Because those lower income students are going to be struggling a lot more because they're not necessarily going to have those resources that the other students are going to have. And in a rural area, I feel like um, at least going off of my experience, there weren't a whole lot of students that were lower income. I was one of, I think I was probably the poorest student in my class. Um, but I was, and I think there were maybe three or four other students in the class of about 37 that were on for your reduced lunches. That's, like, a disgustingly small amount of students, especially if you're looking at about a similar number across the entire school, like, maybe a small handful. I think that there were probably, like, less than 20 of us, um, and it was to the point where all the, te- like, obviously all your teachers are going to know that you're from, that, like, like, all my teachers knew that I lived in a trailer that didn't have heating, you know? Um, that didn't have gas heating. We had elect- we had space heaters all through our house during the winter, and I slept had 20 blankets. No exaggeration. Um, like, I feel like a lot of, like, those teachers knew that, and it was kind of embarrassing, especially when you were called out about those things. Like, having your teacher or something tell you, like, oh, hey, here are these resources. You should mention it to your parents, and then you mention it to your parents, and they just yell at you because they're in Paris, and they're taking it out on you. Or there was one instance where um, I had a teacher give me a bunch of expired stuff from a um, a canned food drive, because she wanted to try to help me out, my family out with food and everything, which was nice, you know, it's shelf life, honestly, like that expiration date doesn't really make much of a difference. But my parents were incredibly upset about it. They were embarrassed. Um, Because both my parents were working at that point in time. Through some of high school, my parents weren't, my mom wasn't working. Um, And it's one of those things, it's like, you can try your best to make sure that that student has the supports that they need. But there's also a point where you need to make sure that you're not crossing over that line, where you're not making that student uncomfortable with you interfering with their personal lives. You have to, like, kind of gauge that with the student, if that makes sense. So the final part of four point one is the um, understanding of the relationship between first and second language acquisition and literacy development. Um, I feel like that's kind of talking about what I mentioned earlier with um, comparing my students that are from the same country but are from different so um, economic classes. Um, the student with, and I feel like I talked about this a lot with like economic differences and everything in the last segment of this. Um, that the student that has more resources in whatever country, in whatever language, is going to do better than the student with less resources. Um, and the student that has a better literacy in like Spanish is going to do better than the student that, does, that has lower literacy in Spanish when they translate both into English. Uh, not translate, but when they start learning stuff in English. They're going to have that better grasp of English content than, I don't even know if it's like better grasp of English content. They're going to be able to read the English better than the student who doesn't do so well in reading Spanish in general. Um, I think that's kind of, to me, that's what this is talking about when I read that um, between first and second language acquisition and literacy development. There, it, it It's going to be easier for the student with more resources regardless of wherever they're at. Um, And in every way, shape, or form, if they have more resources, both at home and in school, they're going to do a lot better. Um, Which it's one of those cases of I need to look at the students and I need to understand their backgrounds as much as I can. There's a point where you end up um, getting too much too pushy and too intrusive and you can end up making a student really uncomfortable with that and you can't get too pushy and intrusive in those cases um but it's important to know those things because that can explain why they're not understanding content in those cases or why they're having a hard time a more difficult time with understanding things than other students Alrighty, so moving on to 4.2, um, teacher candidate uses a literacy curriculum and engages in instructional practices that positively impact students' knowledge, beliefs, engagement with the features of diversity. Um, so, point one of this, 4.2, point one, I guess, um, assess the various forms of diversity that exist in students as well as in the surrounding community. So, I guess it's kind of talk like going back to my roots. Um, as I mentioned, like, my hometown in comparison to Greeley, there was way more, like, there was not diversity in my hometown. Like, there's no way of saying that, like, it was a diverse community and everything. So, in that case, a community like that would end up like, doing, like, the biggest thing with, like, making a curriculum that's diverse um, in that case would be that I'd want to make sure that I have a lot of um, readings done by men and women, not necessarily in a racial si- setting. If I'm looking at the student population and the citizen population in Greeley, um, then I would want to have much more of a diversity. I would want to have readers of different cultures, um, different religions, different genders, all that stuff. Um, because they are, they're like way different <laughs> Like, it's important to be continuously adapting those ideas and stuff because I'm just thinking, like, to my class, like, the high school I went I went to, um, if my teacher had, any of my teachers had assigned us a reading, um, by a Muslim person, for example, um, I think that, like, a lot of the parents and a lot of the community would have ended up being really upset by that. Um, because there is that... Just because, like, I feel like they'd be really offended. They'd be like, why aren't we reading Christian things? la da 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 Meanwhile, I feel like a lot of the community here in Greeley would... Like, I don't think there would be a backlash here in a lot of the schools. Um, because there's a lot of people of that faith. Um, and there's just a lot more diversity here. So I guess in that case, it's really important to be observing and making sure that you know your community, you know, your audience, you know, your group of people. All right. Part two of this provide differentiated instruction and instructional materials, including traditional print, digital, and online resources that capitalize on diversity. Um, in this case, the way I see this is, um, let's take, so this is really easy to do in a historical setting, in my opinion, and in a history classroom. Um, Because I'm just sitting there thinking of, like, let's take the Great Depression, for example. Um, I can have videos. I can have primary source documents. I can have pictures. um, I can have all sorts of different sources that the students can analyze. I can sit there and put students in different groups based off their reading levels, um, which is something that I've seen a lot of teachers do. Um, I can also do it with different ethnic groups. Um, I can have one group... One source from um, African Americans in like New York. I can have another source from um, a white farming family. I can have another source from like Mexican American families um, because they were like heavily attacked during the Great Depression and everything, and they were heavily blamed for like the Depression and lack of economy and no money and blah. You know, the things we hear today about immigrants. <coughs> or even world war 2 stuff. Um things that are like definitely more global, it's really easy to bring in um like global situations are really easy to bring in a like unique blend of different cultures. Um you can bring in stuff like world war 2, you can do stuff from like Japanese citizens, you can do stuff from Ch- from Chinese citizens, you can do stuff from Jewish people, you can do stuff from Germans, you can do stuff from Japanese American citizens in internment camps. There's a whole collection of stuff you can do. Um I feel like in a math class this would be a lot more difficult. Um in the sense of it's really difficult to I I feel like it's really difficult to do diversity in more hard contents content areas like math if that makes sense. I don't know if math would be disc- not not hard as in difficult, but hard as in like you're punching a brick wall, and that brick wall is mathematics. You punch history, and I imagine it's like, I don't know, like, squishy. Not like like foam squishy, but like teddy bear squishy. I don't know where I'm going with this analogy. Um, <laughs> concrete ideas, like concrete subjects, I guess, is the better way I'm going with this. There's not a whole lot of flexibility there. Meanwhile, with, like, humanities, it's a lot more flexible, um, I had a thought, and I don't know where it went, um, how did I go from, I, I don't know what I'm thinking right now, I had a thought, and it just abandoned me, like, so many other things, um, Math is concrete; it's a brick wall. History is a teddy bear, I guess. I don't know. Um, I feel like bringing this, like the um, cultural diver, bringing the cultural diversity, is a little more difficult in some of the other content that I could end up teaching. Um, <clears throat> like economic stuff, I guess I could look at different countries, but I can't bring that personalized aspect of economics. And even then, it depends on how I structure the economic classroom. Um, The way I want to do it is personal finance. And I'm not sure how I could structure a personal finance class without it being offensive, if that makes sense. Um, So in this case, I guess it's like bringing in, for most of like social studies in general, it's just bringing in a wide variety of different types of sources from different types of people. And cultures is the best way that i can incorporate this into my classroom all right the final part of 4.2 is provide instructional formats that engage students as agents of their own learning words are starting to be very difficult for me um so i guess in this case i would want to do more investigative types of learning so oh like a scavenger hunt would be so cool or like that um the um, breakout EDUs is something that I think would be really cool in this case, um, where they're investigating, they're looking at things on their own. There is one activity that we talked about in our methods class um, about uh, um, <clears throat> the students are investigating like a dead body, I guess, um, that's not really dead, dying person. They're investigating a dying person and they're looking at different things like there's... Sores all over their body. There's rats everywhere. It's like 1492 is like the ship log. There's posy petals all over, and it's like, oh, it's we're looking at someone who's suffering from the Black Plague. You know, like one of those things. It's going to engage students a lot more than me being like, here are the symptoms. Okay, I don't think there's any way you can take the Black Plague and not make it engaging to students. Because let's be honest, they're intrigued. They're like, this is disgusting. I freaking love this. You know? For whatever kids really like the darker side of history, I don't know why. We did the French Revolution not too long ago, and we got to the reign of terror. And oh my god, these kids were so excited about guillotines and chopping off heads. But they were really interested in like the the states or the states general and stuff. And I'm like, why are you so interested in, like, death, chaos, and destruction? Why are we so drawn to this? Anyway. Um, <clears throat> I feel like, and, and even then, like, we ended up doing, um, for our ed tech class, we did, uh, like, a hyperdoc assignment. Um, And something you could do with that is you can have students with, You can give students this hyperdoc and have them looking into the information, like clicking on things and looking at different links and all that stuff. Having them actually dig into the content and look into it and not having me just tell them that. I feel like that's one of those things that's definitely going to get them more interested in whatever I'm teaching. Whether I'm teaching things about basic economic concepts like I can't think of any basic economic concepts, but you know what I mean. Taxes, like taxes. How am I going to get students engaged in taxes? I'm going to have them investigate taxes. Don't interview your parents about your taxes because that's personal information that you do not have to share and your parents may feel very uncomfortable sharing with their teacher. Um, But like, I don't know, looking at like fake W-2s and like, talking about whether or not that's, like, taxable income and all that stuff. I don't know, it's boring, but, like, I feel like that would make them more interested than me, like, being like, ah, yes, here's what taxable income is, you know? They do have to know that aspect of what is taxable income, but at that point, then they're applying the knowledge. I feel like a lot of what this is talking about is putting them in a situation where they can apply knowledge. They're not just being told things. They're learning, and they're applying, and they're engaging. Brains, all that stuff. So we're definitely at least 30 minutes into this, if not over 30 minutes. I don't know where we're at. I just see a lot of 2 and 4 and 2.10 two ten segments. We're finally on 4.3, which I'm like 90% sure is the last portion of this. Oh, hey, what do you know? That is the last portion of this. Um, so this is the teacher candidate develops and implements strategies to advocate advocate for equity. Um, Pro- the first part of this provides students with linguistic, academic, and cultural experiences that link their backgrounds with content area learning. Um, again, this is one of those things that's really easy to do in a historical setting. So um, recently, w- the last section of what we did in the World History class, I did observations in which we did the revolutions, And we spent a pretty decent amount of time on Latin American revolutions. Because a lot of the students in the class come from Latin American backgrounds. A lot of them were Latina or Latina. Um, And I feel like in doing that, they're getting a lot more of their cultural history. They're not getting like, white man murders other white man. Or white man does this to other white man. You know, those kinds of situations. They're getting more of a diverse... Look at things. Um, and I, I, again, it's one of those things. It's like, I feel like in a history setting, this is really easy to do. If I'm looking at um, econ, for example, I feel like I would struggle with this a little bit more. Government, yes and no. Um, I could talk about government officials from different backgrounds, but even then, I'm not going to get a lot. Um, LGBT government officials are very few and far between along with Muslim uh, government officials. Um, they're very few and far between. There's not a whole lot of them. So there in most of the ones that there are like these students already know who they are, you know? Um, and again, like once you get into like a global scale of like more modern histories, it's really easy to delve into these concepts Um, Because there's a lot of different ethnic groups being involved. Um, It's not just white people doing white people things. It's all sorts of different types of people being involved in historical events, you know. Um, White people do white people things. Like conquest and murder. You know, because that's what white people do. They conquest and they murder native ethnic groups. Because white people things, I guess hashtag white people things. Anyway, um, yeah, I feel like that's the best way I could implement this into my classroom. (laughs) Cheers. I'm starting to lose my voice. I can feel the vocal strain, so I guess it's good that we're almost done here. Um, advocating for change in social, societal practices and institutional structures that are inherently biased or prejudiced against certain groups. So, this is actually something I'm really wanting to talk about. Um, so, I want to go to rural areas. I've mentioned this at least three times at this point. Um, one of the things about it, about rural areas, is they're not open to LGBTQIA students and people. Especially the TQIA students, uh, or not Q but TIA, um, they're really not open to those types of students. And my entire time I went to school, um, there were there was one student who was like con- like out of the closet. Only one. Um, no, that's a lie. There were like three. But there were other students who we all knew were gay. But they weren't. They didn't say anything. um, For fear of. um, Just fear in general. Um, One of those students I ended up actually seeing outside of my house. Not too long ago. And uh, it was really nice to hear him say that. Like oh hey this is my boyfriend. Because it's like. That's so cool. Because it's like. We all knew it. Um, And here I am getting to actually see him be himself. Um, one of those things I want to do is I really want to create a safe space for LGBTQIA students in a school environment where they're not being pressured to come out to their parents and the school isn't going to tell their parents about these situa- about this, not situations, but tell them. Um, because some schools do that. They tell the parents, they're like, oh, hey, like, your kid told the counselor that they were lesbian. And the kids on the streets. The next day, you know, like that's bad. That's really, really bad. Um, but I say this obviously as a person of like I come from a certain privilege of I am a cis het woman. Um, but I I want to be able to advocate for those students because they're not going to get a whole lot of advocacy. Um. And they may be afraid to come out in those situations. They could end up getting attacked by other students, unfortunately, um, especially in those conservative rural areas. Colorado isn't nearly as bad. Um, the One of the few students who actually was out, a lot of the student body didn't really like him that much. Not because he was gay, but because he was him. That makes sense. Um, it was a lot of personality. A lot of the students were very uncomfortable with it. But there was still a lot of like homophobic ideas. Um, My brother would sit there and say, I'm okay with him being gay as long as he doesn't hit on me. And that's one of those phrases that you can't really say. Like, that's not appropriate. That's not okay. And I want to build a cultural culture in a school that that's kind of still frowned upon. I want students to be comfortable saying that they go by they, them uh, pronouns and that they're okay with me saying that in a classroom um, in in the middle of class. And they're not going to get bullied for it, you know. Um, it's one of those things that would definitely be really hard work in a rural area and could end up getting me fired more or less not fired, but definitely, um, not get tenure, if that makes sense. Um, but it's one of those things that I really want to do. And it's one of those goals that I really want to have because it's so important to those kids to have that safe space, to be able to be included and to feel like they're not alone. Um and I feel like having that kind of an environment where they're free to be open and free to be themselves, um, then I feel like they're it'll help with like suicide rates and stuff. And that's something that I really, really wanna help with. Um in whatever way I can. I wanna make a safe space, you know. Um <laughs> like because in a rural area I'm not gonna have a whole lot of as far as diversity goes, I've Mentioned this so many times. It's not going to be a whole lot of racially diverse students, in all honesty. Um, And even then, like I feel like, with the exception of like xenophobia, which is prevalent in rural conservative areas, unfortunately, um, I feel like like the racial differences aren't as severe as. The sexuality differences. I feel like um, there's still the mentality of the students that are LGBTQIA are going to hell or whatever because a lot of these are heavily Christian areas. Um, my hometown used to be in, was at one point in the Guinness World Book of Records for the most churches per capita. We were a very Christian area. And I don't think um, there was one student who I went to school with that eventually came out as being trans. And her family doesn't acknowledge it, which is really heartbreaking to me. Um, And I feel like a lot of people in the home in my hometown don't really acknowledge it. Like, I feel like my mom and a lot of the other liberal people are some of the few people that do acknowledge that, but a lot of the conservative people don't. You know, Um, I feel like we're as a society we're starting to get better with some of these mindsets. especially with, like, lesbian and gay students, I feel like as a society, we're making steps in the right direction, we're not there yet, and I want to be what I can, and I want to do what I can to make that better, you know? So, this is definitely the longest podcast that I have made, because I keep rambling, um, so we're on the last part, thank god, I'm sure, um, the- teacher is demonstrating how issues of inequality and opportunities for social justice activism or res- resiliency in students' communities can be incorporated into the content areas and literacy curriculum. So this is definitely like in my case of wanting to go to a rural area. This is a very much a double-edged sword. Um, I can bring this in very easily in history classroom. Um, civil rights movement is in itself, social justice activism, um, women's rights movements, social justice activism. There's a lot of different aspects of this that can be seen in history. Um, I feel like in a rural setting, if I were to bring this up way too much, the students would hate me. Um, My Spanish teacher, Miss Richardson, um, I wouldn't say she was social justice warrior, but like, she mentioned a lot of social justice things, um, and it's part of why students really didn't like her that much. She hammered it too much. Then again, she was a Spanish teacher. She shouldn't, like, that's not her job to be talking about and getting on a pedestal. And I feel like I would have a really difficult time, um, I, I would have a difficult time not getting on a soapbox on some subjects, um, Xenophobia is one of those subjects I don't I would I would get on a soapbox and I would rant about how it's not okay to put an entire religious group in one box. Um, same with LGBTQIA rights. Um, it would be so hard to not get on a soapbox because on the one hand it makes those stu- those vulnerable students feel more comfortable with me and feel like they can come to me for a lot of things, but at the, on the other hand, it's alienating, not alienating, but it's pushing those other students away from me. Um, and parents, God, parents in this case, um, oh God, like, that's the point of where it's like, I could end up losing my job because the parents are pushing to get me fired. Or the students are signing, having petitions go around to get me fired or something like that. Um, I've heard it all. I've seen it all from these areas. Um, That's like my biggest concern here. Um, I feel like students that aren't. um, I feel like students that are student teachers are going into less rural areas don't. Run into those issues as much, um but at the same time, because those are problems, I feel like it's even more important for me to be bringing up these th- these subjects, you know, and the fact that uh, you need to fight for what you believe in, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. Which also means that, like, I don't know, a lot of them want to be fighting for social justice activism. If we're being honest, um. As far as literacy curriculum goes, like, again, it's our literacy curriculum is less reading books and more reading sources. And in that case, it would be more bringing in so sources from those activists. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm sitting there thinking of certain topics in history, like, um... I don't know, like, the American Revolution, you know? The Revolutionary War... I don't know how social justice activism works in the Revolutionary War. I don't know. Is rebelling against your government technically social justice activism? Is it activism in any form? No, I don't really think it is. It's telling people, like, rebel against your government. (laughs) I don't know. Like, there are certain points in history where it's really difficult to talk about. Government, I feel like this is one of the subjects that would really do well in government or sociology class. Um, because there is a lot of legislation, um, in a gov- for a government class that we could talk about. The biggest issue, another issue I see is I don't want to be allowing students to sit there and say that gay people should not be able to exist in the United States. I don't want a conversation like that happening in my classroom, But at the same time, like, I don't know if I'm able to shut down that conversation. These are kids' opinions and thoughts. But at the same time, I just don't want that conversation to happen. I want students to be open-minded and fair and all that stuff. It is really hard to do that in a rural area. Because they believe the same thing that their parents believed, you know? I don't know. I have a lot of concerns with this point, but it's a very important point. And it's really important for me as a teacher going into a rural area to be influencing that. You know, I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard to think about. Well, it's not hard to think about. It's just hard to think about incorporating because I also don't want to lose my job. You know, that's one of the biggest things. Like, I have to have a job to live. And if I get five... if like at that point I had to sit there and be like, oh, hey, like to any future employers, like, Oh, hey, this is why a lot, like, I don't know necessarily why I wasn't hired back, but I wasn't being hired back, back, you know? And, like, I don't think in that case they would tell me, like, hey, you're being too pushy on social justice rights. Because I don't think you, I don't even know if you can legally fire someone for that. But I don't know. It concerns me. It's something I really want to bring into the classroom, but I don't think I could do it until I got tenure, unfortunately. Like, it re- in reality, like in a rural setting, I don't think I could do it until I have tenure to the point where I am basically lock and key in that job position until I leave or until some- I mess up big time or I quit, you know, whatever, you know.